My uh, parents worked really hard in life. Uh, both of them, mum and dad, were immigrants uh, to this country, uh, one without even uh, the English language under his belt. Uh, they raised two kids after trying for five long years to conceive. Uh, they got to the age of 65, you know, retirement age, with substantial assets uh, to their name, essentially, and we're talking uh, the mid-1980s here, uh, they were millionaires. Uh, they had two adult children who hadn't disgraced themselves yet. Uh, in every way, you'd think they were set for a smooth cruise home, right, in those golden years. Then came a sequence of bad decisions over the next 10 years uh, that left them basically broke, uh, separated, and in my dad's case, relatively estranged from his kids and grandkids since he moved to the other side of the planet. An acquaintance of mine is, if truth be told, an idiot, uh, what the Bible calls a fool. He's utterly rigid in his own views to the point where people who disagree with him are by definition wrong because otherwise they'd agree with him. He wanders through life like a bull in a china shop. He has no idea how much damage he causes to the people around him. And yet in his church, he's highly respected, even awed as something of a pillar, and actually has significant spiritual influence for good in the lives of many people. Another acquaintance of mine, the most intelligent person I've ever known, is also among the most relationally incompetent people I've ever known and has spent the good part of his life desperately, desperately lonely. I could tell you a hundred stories uh, like this and uh, stories that illustrate the fact that so often life just doesn't make sense. It doesn't work out quite like you'd expect it to. And what's more, I just imagine that each of us here this evening could add our own hundred on top of it. Welcome to the world of the teacher. Uh, or as you can see in the footnote to the very first verse of Ecclesiastes, uh, a person who we're going to call Kohelet, uh, the persona at the centre of what is probably the most disturbing and freaky book of the Bible, Ecclesiastes. Kohelet is not uh, so much a preacher like the Apostle Paul. He's not writing a letter to instruct and encourage. Uh, Kohelet is more of a courtroom barrister. Okay, so you've got to get into that sort of zone of uh, dramatic uh, legal movie or TV series. Suits, you know what I mean? Just go, go suits, think suits. Interrogating our current answers to the challenges of life. Okay, that's what Ecclesiastes is going to do to you. It gives you more questions than answers, or at least it gives you questions of such pointedness and pokiness that they simply will not let you get away with pat, easy answers. Kohelet pushes you to the very boundaries of your thought because he knows that so often we don't have the courage to go there by ourselves. Uh, reading Ecclesiastes is a scary ride. Um, and I'm going to suggest that over the next uh, few weeks, because we're going to spend January in Ecclesiastes, that we, and we can't do uh, every verse... And so for you to actually take the time um, on nice, long summer evenings, perhaps, uh, to read Ecclesiastes all the way through for yourself a couple of times. Don't just read it once and don't read it quickly. Let it marinate you, okay? Let it soak in, 
read Ecclesiastes a few times over the next few weeks. But note that it's a scary ride. A friend of mine likens the book of Ecclesiastes to being grabbed by the scruff of the neck and slammed up against the window of life with nose pressed flat and being made to witness life in all its contrariness and all its contradiction. It's sobering. Uh, You may even say it's a little bit depressing and, and today's sermon's a little bit down. But it's also an inoculation. Uh, you know what you know, inoculation? It's, it's when you get a, a needle that gives you a little bit of a virus so that you get a little bit of the virus up front so that when the virus comes, you've got the antibodies already at work in your body. Life is contrary and contradictory. And when we run face first into the challenges of life, it's disappointments, it's frustrations, though it doesn't work how it's supposed to work. If we're not ready, if our faith is shallow and brittle, if all you've got in the tank is just a little bit of naive optimism, then you'll be shaken to the core and maybe even just broken in two. Ecclesiastes gives you a small dose of spiritual flu up front as an inoculation. And as we wrestle with Ecclesiastes, you might get the shakes. But I take it that Kohelet is of the view that sometimes you've got to be cruel to be kind. And the end result of a close encounter of the Ecclesiastes kind is a deeper, richer, and more stable discipleship to Jesus Christ. Uh, Our plan of attack uh, over the month is as follows. This week is the big picture, introducing the book as a whole. And in particular, I'm going to suggest um, a challenge to one way that uh, Ecclesiastes is sometimes understood, uh, a way in which um, I think it kind of blunts Ecclesiastes' pretty uncompromising message. Over the following three weeks, uh, we're going to look at three of the key issues in Ecclesiastes, the issues of wealth and wisdom and power. And we're going to see how and why the teacher challenges the meaning and significance of even these most precious of things. And we're going to conclude by looking at how Ecclesiastes speaks of uh, the ultimate point where we can land in relation to God and what difference that makes to the book's message. So let's start with uh, where he starts, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the teacher, verse 1, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the teacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, uh, think about it for a moment. Verse 1 is presumably written by a, an editor uh, who introduces what follows from verse 2 onwards as written by an unnamed but identified figure. See how it says? It says, the words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, you, you don't have to know the Old Testament terribly well uh, to know that David's son was Solomon. Uh, Solomon is the figure renowned in the Bible as the wisest person ever. Uh, And actually, one whose wealth matched his wisdom and who therefore has the intellectual credibility as well as the financial means to do the research project that Ecclesiastes describes. And and our teacher wastes uh, no time in verse 2, very first verse that we hear what the teacher says. 
He announces a theme that will dominate the entire book of Ecclesiastes, bringing a unity to 12 chapters of what can seem like otherwise meandering reflections on a sequence of barely related topics. Ready? Here's what the teacher's got to tell you for the next month. Vanity of vanities, says the teacher, all is vanity. You got that? Well, maybe not quite yet. Let's keep going. This is the single point that Ecclesiastes explores with a razor-sharp gaze. And so right from the start, it's crucial to get a sense of what he means by this word, this word which we have translated vanity, or in the Hebrew, and I'm going to teach you two Hebrew words tonight, so you know, if, if nothing else from tonight, you can impress your friends uh, with Hebrew. Uh, and the first word is hevel. Uh, you see there, it was, uh, in Hebrew, you say the letter B like a V, and that makes you sound very kind of Jewish. Okay, Hevel, like that. So the translation of Havel that we have here uh, is vanity. Uh, other translations have it as uh, meaningless. Um, as I say, we have vanity. Vanity normally means uh, what you do when you're at the gym and you spend more time looking in the mirror than concentrating on what you're actually lifting. Well, in my case, that's more imagination than vanity, uh, but you get the point. Um, that's not how Ecclesiastes means it here. It's the old-fashioned sense of the word vanity that's meant here. Vanity in the sense of something that's vain, that's in vain, that's, that's trivial or futile or a waste of time. The basic sense of havel, the Hebrew word, is of vapour or breath, like a cloud maybe. And you can see how you get from that idea of vapour or breath to vanity. And in fact, the Bible uses the word in that way from time to time. So in Psalm 39 verse 5, the psalmist writes, you've made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing in your sight. Surely everyone stands as a mere breath, a mere havel. The emphasis here is on a temporariness, human life as just kind of here today and gone tomorrow, passing. It, it, it eludes our grasp. Uh, or the, the same point, uh, now from Proverbs chapter 31, uh, charm is deceptive and beauty is havel, um, fleeting, uh, temporary. It's kind of, you know, when you're 20-something, sure, but, but everyone live a few years and you guess what? Charm is deceptive, beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Don't get your priorities wrong, he's saying, you idiot guys. Understand what really matters. Now, and this is really important, you've got to work with me here a little bit. What usually goes along with this sense of Hevel as vanity is the phrase that appears in verse 2, namely, under the sun. Under the sun. Talking about life in this world. And the way that Ecclesiastes is sometimes then put together uh, is to add those two ideas and come up with a message. Namely, that life under the sun understood to mean 
life apart from God, life lived in an entirely secular, material way, that kind of life is vanity. That kind of life is worthless or trivial or ephemeral. But life lived with God, life lived the way the book concludes, actually, fearing God and keeping his commandments, that life is not vanity. That life is not meaningless. Okay, that's how Ecclesiastes is often understood. I even have a friend who takes this uh, the next step further and holds that since the only thing that really lasts, not like vapour, you know, clouds, breath, the only thing that really lasts into eternity is Christian ministry. <clears throat> it's only Christian ministry that escapes the condemnation of the teacher that all is vanity. And so what this friend of mine says is, give up your day job, do something that matters in life and become a minister. Uh, the fact that he's a minister who says this makes you a little bit suspicious about this interpretation of the Bible, but we won't go there too long. Do you, do you see what this interpretation of Ecclesiastes is doing? It's saying that the whole of Ecclesiastes functions as a kind of bad news about being a secular person that comes before the good news about being a Christian. But that Ecclesiastes itself doesn't really have anything much to say to Christians about how to live the Christian life. It's about the past for Christians. You, you, you see what I'm saying here? You understand? Now, that's kind of a comforting way to read Ecclesiastes, right? Tr meaningless, meaningless, vanity, vanity. Uh, that's all about them out there. right? You don't have to take Ecclesiastes' message for yourself personally if you're a Christian person. It's kind of a comforting way to read Ecclesiastes. Actually, it's a bit too comfortable because it, it just doesn't wash with the text. If you read Ecclesiastes, that's why I want you to read it over the next uh, few weeks, a couple of times, you'll realise that the problem with that view is simply that God doesn't wait till the end to make an appearance in Ecclesiastes. God doesn't wait till the end of Ecclesiastes to uh, reassure us that when he's in the centre of the picture, then everything is okay and is not Havel. Actually, 39 times throughout Ecclesiastes, God is mentioned, fair and square in the middle of life under the sun. And still, with God right there in the middle of the picture, the teacher can say, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That way of reading Ecclesiastes, that's not going to work. We can't escape its teaching like that. I think a better sense of what uh, Kohelet is getting at by this keyword Havel uh, is a kind of a combination of the idea of fleeting but also elusive. Something that you just can't quite get your hands on. At the end of the chapter here, in chapter 1, verse 17, uh, the teacher uses a parallel phrase to describe the same thing. He says that it's like a chasing after wind, uh, or more literally, a shepherding of the wind. And so here's the sort of um, um, uh, active learning 
task if you want to try this. Okay, so after the service, when you leave and you're walking down to the car or walking home, whatever you might do, okay, try and shepherd a bit of wind. All right, there's quite a lot of breeze out tonight, which is nice. It's nice and cool out there. So just try and shepherd a little bit of it. Okay, you know what shepherd is? You, you, you've got sheep, and, and the idea is you, you stop it going over there, and you stop it going, and you, make, and you stop it right here. Okay, just have a go at shepherding a bit of wind and see how you go with that. It's a crazy task to try and shepherd the wind. Wind is something that just refuses to be shepherded. You can never wrestle it to the ground. You can never get it under control. And that's what life is like, according to the teacher. All of life for everyone. Perhaps the best word that we could use to translate Hevel uh, is absurd. The key thought in the idea of the absurd is that there are, there are two things that are linked together. There are two things at least that ought to be linked together. Everything screams out about them that they should be linked together, but they're not. The link is broken down. Hard work ought to produce Good results, don't you think? Yes, that makes sense. Guess what? Hardly ever works out that way. That's absurd. Wisdom, the wise person, ought to have a better outcome in their life than the fool. But guess what? They both end up just as dead as each other. Pleasure, by definition, is better than pain, says the teacher. We'll come to that in a couple of weeks' time. But actually, in the end, pleasure hardly satisfies. It runs dry pretty quickly. Absurd. Absurdity of absurdities. All of life is absurd. Now, hear this loud and clear. Uh, I, I'm going to just pin you to the ground here a little bit. I don't want you to escape what's uh, being said here. The teacher is not saying that these things, or, or more broadly, uh, life is absurd in the sense that it's merely incongruous or ironic. Oh, how interesting. What an interesting reflection. Isn't that ironic? Remember that song by Avril? Avril? Alexis. Alanis Morissette, Yes. Isn't it ironic? Not that I think she really knew what irony was actually in that song, but anyway, there you go. Isn't it? No, no, that's too light. That's too light. For the teacher, you've got to take this a whole lot more serious than irony. Uh, this absurdity of life is tragic and it cuts deep and can even be oppressive. In the same way, the teacher's not saying that life is, is kind of mysterious or incomprehensible, or paradoxical, uh, which would imply if only we uh, could understand a little thing, things better, if only we were smarter or had more insight that we could figure things out. Now the teacher says, I have figured things out. I understand. It's not there's a lack of understanding or wisdom or knowledge or insight here. I get it, says the teacher. And what there is to get is that life is absurd. 
And the teacher's not even saying that things are meaningless. The uh, NIV translation of Ecclesiastes has meaningless. I think it's a, that's actually a worse translation even than vanity because the teacher's perfectly comfortable to say that some things are better than other things. Not, not that everything's meaningless. Now the teacher says that you live in a world that you can neither fully understand nor fully control. In fact, that's just that's a way over that's a way understatement. Most of the time, your understanding and your control of the world are minuscule. Minuscule. And the reason it's absurd is precisely because the teacher refuses to give up on either of his deep, deep convictions. Two of them. On the one hand, the teacher is absolutely convinced that God is God, that God is good and that he's in charge of things and the teacher will never let go of that. That's partly why he talks about God 39 times throughout Ecclesiastes. He will not let go. And on the other hand, he says he faces fairly and squarely that things are bad. At least some things are sometimes bad and confusing and ungraspable and vaporous. And I'm not going to pretend that that's not the case. I'm not going to brush that under the carpet and say, well, it'll work out. The teacher holds onto both of these core convictions and draws the conclusion, vanity of vanities, says the teacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Life is absurd. And the biggest complaint uh, of all that he has is that there is no ultimate advantage in anything. Verse 3. What do people gain from all the toil at which they toil under the sun? Here's the second Hebrew word uh, for the day. Uh, you've got the first word, Havel, and the second Hebrew word is Yitron. Yitron is uh, the word, it just simply means profit. Uh, surplus. It's the, a key to understanding the teacher's um, take on the absurdity of life. Yitron is concerned with the surplus on investment. It's what's left over for you after you've paid all your debts. Uh, years ago, my wife uh, Katrina started a vet business with a colleague. They each worked for about 30 hours a week uh, and they did not draw a salary after the business opened for months and months and months. They paid the uh, rent, they paid the nurses, they paid everyone else and they worked for free for nothing. They got no Yitron. There was no profit to them from all their toil. Uh, and actually, Ecclesiastes would say even if they did get a modest salary, there would still be no Yitron. There would just be the treadmill of a workaday job. And the teacher asks the very pointy question what do people gain from all the toil at which they toil under the sun? What actual difference does it make? From all the work, all the doings, everything you've done, what lasting impact, what yitron, what difference does it make? There is no real advantage, no strides forward in life taken as a whole when you've done all your work, invested in all your relationships, done all your activity. What ultimate difference does it make? What difference do you make? Uh, you might say, well... We got that project done, or, or we, we made this great business. 
But Kohelet's point's an even bigger point. Yeah, but, but what difference does that ultimately make? Ask the question about the whole of your life. And you see, that, that's why it's absurd. Because deep within all of us, there is a sort of yearning, a crying out. It should make a difference. There should be a yitron. The example he uses is the biggest example of them all, the created order in its entirety. Verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Human generations come and go, but this procession of life doesn't really alter the face of humanity. Uh, notice how uh, kind the Kohelet uh, 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 is to us. He talks about the past generation. He says, they made no difference. He talks about the future generation and he says, they'll make no difference either. He generously doesn't include us, the present generation, uh, but actually you know that that's what he's really getting at, right? Guess what? Neither will you. A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, verse 5, and the sun goes down and hurries to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes round to the north. Round and round goes the wind on its circuits. The wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they continue to flow. This enormous effort with no result is the same with the natural elements, the sun rising and setting in the east and west, the wind blowing in north and south, the water systems of precipitation and evaporation, all of them achieve precisely nothing. Just a repeating cycle, again and again and again with no real progress. And for the teacher, this is not a comforting thing. You know, sometimes, and, and we're in summer, right, so you should make sure you get this opportunity. You sit by the beach, at a, at a nice warm day and at sunset at the beach and the waves come in and the waves go out. And the waves come in and the waves go out. And you just sit there and you look at it and you think, that's just so beautiful that the waves come in and the waves go out. And they come in and they go out. And the sort of eternal sameness of all things as a deep truth to be embraced grabs you for just one second and you go, wow, isn't that beautiful? Actually, that's the Buddhist way uh, to recognise this eternal sameness and to embrace the fact that ultimately uh, we will be absorbed into it. Also floating away into the great ocean of being to become nothing but another drop in the ocean, every one of us. For the Buddhist, this is a comforting thought. For the teacher, he hates it! Because there's no yitron in that. There's no profit, and there should be. All things, verse 8, are wearisome. Perhaps a better translation is all things are hard at work. More than one can express. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it said, see, this is new? Guess what? It has already been in the ages before us. The people of long ago are not remembered, nor will there be any remembrance of people yet to come by those who come after them. Um, this is too 
obvious to miss, you're about to make your New Year's resolutions, aren't you? Maybe you've already made them for this year. Guess what? The same thing will happen this year as happened to last year's New Year's resolutions. Namely, not much. It goes round and round and round. You'll make your resolution, there'll be a little bit of effort, there'll be modest success, there'll be mostly failure, there'll be a little bit of distress that will strengthen your resolution. But there's nothing new. And even if you do keep up the gym for three months this time instead of just two, Seriously? You want to say that that's some big deal? It's absurd. It's absurd. What's more, this is not the lazy conclusion of a fool, someone who simply can't be bothered with doing the hard yards of thinking this through. Verse 12, I, the teacher, when king over Israel in Jerusalem, applied my mind to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Everything that's out there, it's an unhappy business that God has given to human beings to be busy with. I saw all the deeds that are done under the sun and see, all is vanity and a chasing after wind. The teacher tells us that he's undertaken a universal investigation, one that encompasses all that's done under heaven. Remember, we're talking about Solomon, who had the capacity, the resources and the opportunity to do this. And his conclusion is the same. All is vanity. All is absurd and a chasing after wind. Uh, Kohelet quotes a proverb in verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what's lacking, that's the opposite of Yitron, right? Prophet. What's lacking cannot be counted. And a few chapters later, the teacher makes clear how he understands this. Chapter 7, verse 13, he says, Consider the work of God. See, here's God right under the sun. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? This impossibility, this lack, the fact that life doesn't work is how God has made things. It's he who has given human beings their unfortunate business in life to be busy with. And so his conclusion, verse 16, I said to myself, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who are over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceive that this also is but a chasing after the wind. He, this is the smartest guy who's ever lived. He's, he's known more wisdom, more insight and understanding into life than any person before or after. And here's his conclusion, verse 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And those who increase knowledge increase sorrow. Uh, when our first uh, child, Miles, was a baby, he cried a lot. Uh, I mention this every three or four months in a sermon because I'm, I'm still working it through 22 years later. Uh, he really, really, really cried a lot. And we had a friend uh, who tried to encourage us to hang in there uh, with, the, with Miles and not hand him over for adoption. Um, and... and the friend told us that he cried because he was a thinker baby. And after that, we realised that there were two kinds of babies, right? There were 
thinker babies that cried a lot and were really unhappy. And then there were other kinds of babies that were just dumb and happy. And, and the teacher says, actually, that's how it starts in life and that's pretty much how it goes through all the life all the way. In much wisdom is much vexation. Those who increase knowledge increase sorrow. You, you understand life better? You be smarter about life? Guess what? You'll perceive its absurdity more acutely. The more you understand of life, the deeper your insight and the better your observation, the more compelling is the conclusion. Verse 14, I saw all the deeds that are done under the sun and see all is vanity and a chasing after the wind. Much better to be like me, dumb and happy. All right, I told you this was going to be a pretty interesting introduction to Ecclesiastes. There is another ancient Jewish book that's not in the Bible. It's called, somewhat confusingly, Ecclesiasticus. Okay, they're two quite different books, Ecclesiastes and Ecclesiasticus. Okay? Ecclesiasticus is a much happier book. Ecclesiasticus is confident that everything will work out in the end. Listen to the final words of Ecclesiasticus. May your soul rejoice in God's mercy and may you never be ashamed to praise him. Do your work in good time and in his own time, God will give you your reward. Okay, that, that's a happy ending. That's the sort of thing the Bible should say, right? It's H-A-P-P-Y. And the interesting thing is that neither the church nor the synagogue decided to include Ecclesiasticus in their scriptures and instead went for Ecclesiastes in all its darkness and with all its honesty, its brutal honesty about life because it speaks the truth. Now, the, the teacher will go on to say two crucial things about this collapse of meaning. Two things, uh, and I'm kind of giving you this as a way of saying, uh, do come back next week, right? This is not the whole story. Ecclesiastes also has some other things to say. Two things which function in the midst of the absurdity of life, and he never resolves from that, whether you know God or don't know God. Strength to hold on to his two core convictions, that God is God and God is good, and that life is so often bad. On the one hand, the teacher says that the very fact of this collapse of meaning is not somehow apart from the purposes of God. This absurdity of life is precisely what God intends for everyone. Because after it comes fear. A proper fear of the Lord. N not a fear that makes everything work out after all and that just, you know, turns out good. But a fear that recognises that God is in heaven and you and I are on earth and therefore we should let our words be few. We are just feeble little creatures who know almost nothing about anything much really. And we're fools if we think otherwise. God is the one who has it under control, not us. Not us. That's the first thing. 
The second thing is, he says, this collapse of meaning into the absurd is not the only story, for God allows us to build small meanings, micro meanings, if you like, from the broken pieces of reason and experience. These small things, uh, which the teacher usually calls pleasures, the local pleasures of work and relationships and wealth, life's small joys. These small things don't rescue the big picture. They don't make life suddenly work out altogether. You think that having a great job and being really wealthy and marrying just that right person is going to make your life all work? You're a fool if you think that. You're a fool. No, no, no. There are small joys that are the gifts of God. We're to receive them as such. The meals and conversations and tears with friends. Those magic sporting moments. These spectacular journeys. These these things are good. They're not grandly meaningful. They don't somehow make sense of all of life. They can't provide answers to life's ultimate questions or ultimate fulfilment to life's emptiness. But you can receive them and enjoy them as gifts from God. In fact, the only way you'll ever be able to receive them and enjoy them just for what they are, rather than for what you need them to be to make you happy, is if you understand that they don't make life any less absurd. Otherwise, you'll idolise them. Otherwise, you'll put your hope in them. And that will crush you because you'll be putting your hope in the absurd. As the teacher puts it in chapter 5, verse 18, this is what I've seen to be good. It's fitting to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of the life God gives us. For this is our lot. And you see, that's enough. That's enough for finite, feeble little creatures like us to be able to live well in the fear of the Lord. That's where we're heading over the next few weeks. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, to you we look, not to ourselves, to you. For you hold this world in your hands. And so much of life doesn't work out the way we want it to. So much of life doesn't work out the way we think it should. And it never will. But our times are in your hands. And we won't let that deter us from our trust in you. Because you have shown us your great love and goodness in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.